As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Mary Glowry as an example of the Christian life. A talk by Helenka Pashtetnik. So the true apology of the Christian faith, the most convincing demonstration of its truth against every denial are the saints and the beauty that the faith has generated. Today, for the faith to grow, we must lead ourselves and the persons we meet to encounter the saints and to enter into contact with the beautiful. These words of Joseph Ratzinger remind us to look to the saints as examples of Christian lives authentically lived and as signs of what the church is called to be. Hansos von Balthasar writes that the saints are the poor sinner's guiding stars, and Lumen Gentium declares that the saint is a companion, model, and intercessor. Christians learn the faith by looking to the saints. Ratzinger claims that one who truly believes, who lets himself be matured by faith, begins to become a light for others. He or she becomes a source of support to whom others can turn for help. Dr. Sister Mary Glowry's cause for canonization was opened in 2010, and she was declared servant of God in 2013. I think that we can be inspired and motivated by her life story, and that's why I'd like to share it with you today. For those of you who have not heard of her at all, she was an Australian-born woman who spent most of her life ministering to the sick in India. She is the second Australian to be declared servant of God after St. Mary MacKillop of the Cross. In my presentation, I'd like to introduce you to her story and reflect particularly on her spiritual life and the witness she gave through her mission. I'll start off by presenting her life story and then <laughs> um, along the way I'll pick up on um, particularly important themes and then I'll hone in on three aspects of her spirituality uh, and character that I think particularly encompass uh, who she was and serve as a point of reflection also for our own lives. So to start off with her bio biography. Mary Glowry was born in country Victoria in Birigara in 1887. She was the third of nine children, and um, three of those children died in infancy, so she grew up with five other siblings. Uh, her nickname uh, when she was little was Bubs. One of the earliest stories about her life is the story of her baptism and her naming. So she was taken to be baptized by her godmother, and her godmother asked her mother, you know, what would you like your little daughter to be named? And her mother said, I haven't quite decided if I want her to be named Eliza or Alicia. So her godmother took her to be baptized and brought her back, handed her to her mother and said, her name is Mary. Um, and so uh, Mary Glowry was always grateful to her godmother because she had a great devotion to, to Our Lady um, throughout her life. Early childhood was a happy time for Mary. She was very close to her older sister, Lucy. She, saw, uh, she loved and admired her parents and she saw their Catholic beliefs lived out in the way they related to others in the community as well as in their prayers. Her father ran the Birigara store, then a hotel at Garvok, and then one in Watcham, in Victoria's Mali region. Mary saw him showing kindness and generosity to all. Her mother nurtured her family and educated them in the Catholic faith. 
She was known in the Watcham district as a peacemaker among families. As a child, Mary was already aware of her limitations and had a great desire to do God's will. She recounts that when she was only six years old, her mother told her that we must pray always for the grace to do the holy will of God. Mary had been reflecting on heaven, hell and purgatory and how much she didn't want to go to hell or purgatory and after her death. And in her unpublished autobiography, she recounts what happened next. Mama told us, that we must always pray for the grace to do the holy will of God. Next day, I stood beside a rose bush in the little rose garden in front of Mother's room and pondered over these words. Suddenly, there flashed into my mind, surely God given, that if I could but succeed in doing God's holy will always, then not only would sin be impossible, but I should always do that which was well-pleasing in his sight. This petition became my constant prayer. Mary's parents consistently modelled their faith. She saw them acting with respect, humility and generosity towards others, regardless of race, creed or circumstance. Mary relates anecdotes of both her parents treating neighbours and patrons of the hotel and visiting Indian hawkers with dignity and assistance when needed. Life changed dramatically for Mary and the Glowry family when Mary was about 10 years old. Um, That year, Mary's Mary's baby brother, Joseph, died and she vividly recalled the grief many years later. That same year, the family investments were misappropriated by the bank manager forcing them to sell everything they had to pay their debts and leaving them in poverty. Mary recalled that despite the family's many privations, no one complained. The changed circumstances had further implications for Mary. The family was dependent on the goodwill of neighbours for accommodation and provisions. The children had to interact with the community more, which quiet and sensitive Mary found very difficult and she writes this in her autobiography. By nature, I was quiet and shy. Some people described me as the girl who never talks. Others jumped to the conclusion that I was too proud to talk to them. Some people, noticing my peculiarities, called me slow coach, dreamer, good for nothing. I often cried myself to sleep. I began to think of myself as the ugly duckling of the family. The family's poverty also meant that Mary would have to earn her living as an adult. Continuing her study, therefore, was important, and her school teacher, Mr. Harry Gill, encouraged her parents to let her sit for a scholarship, and she did sit for this scholarship when she was 13 years old, and she came third out of 800 applicants. Um, Her parents were unsure whether to actually let her take up the scholarship because it would mean she would have to move away from home a distance of about 320 kilometres to come live in Melbourne as as a young teenager, but eventually they reluctantly agreed to let her come. She enrolled at South Melbourne College, which was a co-ed private secondary school, and she really enjoyed her time in high school. She lived at a convent on Beaconsfield Parade and she had a nice view of Port Phillip Bay right outside her window. And um, the building where she actually lived, the convent, um, it's still there. It's a private property now, but you can still see it on Beaconsfield Parade. 
Reflecting on this time in her autobiography, she shares this story. I was free when the ladies took their evening meal. I used to spend this time in the convent chapel. In the summer evenings, it was daylight till about 8pm, so the chapel was brightly lit up. I used to carry a booklet called Leaflets, which contained one prayer that suited my needs. Very soon I knew it by heart, and I used to find myself saying it not only in the chapel, but in all sorts of places. Do thou teach me an entire forgetfulness of myself, O Lord, since there is no other way of entering into thee. Teach me what I must do to attain thy pure love, with a desire of which thou hast inspired me. I feel in myself a great wish to please thee, and a great inability to do so, without a special light and assistance which I can look for only from thee. Do thou accomplish thy holy will in me, O Lord. I oppose it, I well know, but I would fain not do so. It is for thee, O divine heart, to do all. Thine alone shall be the glory of my sanctification if I become a saint. It will be greatly to thy glory. This I well know, and it is for this alone that I desire to become perfect. Mary later found out that this prayer was written by St. Claude de la Colombière, who was the spiritual director of St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, uh, the promoter of devotion to the Sacred Heart. Mary um, wrote that this prayer, in fact, became her spiritual director, and she refers to it as her spiritual director throughout her autobiography. Um, so it was a very powerful prayer in her life. And so she progressed through high school. In her final year of high school, she was docs um, in French, German, English, and history. And um, so she really loved the humanities. And she enrolled at Melbourne Uni in um, 1905, uh, studying for a Bachelor of Arts. And she actually lived at Ormond College. So if this talk would, was given a few, few years earlier, you know, we would have been standing where she went to college. After one year of doing arts, Mary transferred to study medicine. The transition wasn't straightforward and wasn't even her idea, but rather that of her dad while she was still in high school. He had encouraged her to think about studying medicine. At first, Mary had been hesitant because the only subjects she had not been good at in high school were the sciences, and she strongly preferred languages and history. But she began to pray fervently about this decision. She writes that she prayed her favourite prayer, do thou accomplish thy holy will in me, not only before the blessed sacrament, but in the classroom and in the busy streets, everywhere and anywhere. And eventually she decided to switch from arts to medicine. She faced many difficulties during her uni study, not only as a woman, but also as a Catholic. At that time, few women studied medicine, and some of her fellow students and even lecturers thought that women shouldn't be studying medicine. Her, and um, regarding her Catholicism and the difficulties she encountered, her sister Lucy wrote uh, the following experience, uh, the following about Mary's experiences at medical school. I used to go to the university medical school and be with her for Friday's lunch to see that the students didn't torment her about not eating meat on Friday or being a Roman Catholic. They called her a timid mouse but didn't act or speak thus in my presence. 
Mary would come to our boarding house in tears at night on account of the treatment she received at lectures during the day. Yet despite her sensitive nature, Mary was involved in defending Catholic medical ethical principles while she was at uni. Once she was invited by a senior woman student to observe an operation which she knew was illicit, and she recalls what, um, what happened around this. Among the students, there was a group of splendid Catholic men, about 12 in number. I was the only Catholic woman. This incident made them band together in order to get Catholic teaching on ethical principles. This was not easily obtained. To be sure, ethical principles were the same then as they are now. The difficulty was to find the correct practical applications. The students of our group used to protest when the doctor proposed or carried out treatment that was contrary to natural law. Doubtless, owing to their alertness, opportunities for such protests seemed to multiply. During this time, Mary would also give free medical advice and assistance to the uh, poor Mel- poorer Melbourne suburbs. Her sister Lucy wrote, I used to go with her at night when in Melbourne, sometimes to take blankets, clothing, etc., to some woman or babe in dire need in Fitzroy, Collingwood, Richmond, suburbs of the needy. I would replenish her supply of underclothing, blankets, etc., time and again, for she always found someone more needful than herself, and the amount of free medical attention she gave was great. I said to father and mother when she decided to go to India that we would know, so long as she entered a religious congregation, that she would not want for clothing, food or sleep. This was a relief, for we were always anxious about her. She worked such long hours on boarding house food and would give away all she possessed. In the end, Mary persevered in her studies and she graduated from Melbourne Uni in 1910. In 1911, she was appointed the first residential uh, woman doctor in New Zealand and after that year, she came back to Australia in 1912 and worked at a number of uh, Melbourne hospitals, including the Royal Ione Hospital, St Vincent's, the Queen Vic Hospital, um, and also had her own private practice on Collins Street. During the war years, 1914 to 18, uh, she also, um, her time was much taken up with relieving duties for doctors who were called to military service. So she, she had a, a very full young professional life. She enjoyed her work. She felt fulfilled in what she was doing. But her life experienced a turning point on the 24th of October, 1915. That day, she read a pamphlet about a Scottish woman pioneer called Dr. Agnes McLaren. Uh, Dr. Agnes McLaren had become Catholic at the age of 61 and at the age of 72 had gone to India. In India, she had established a hospital for women, especially for women and babies in Rawalpindi um, because she was very concerned about the health care, the health care of um, women and children, women especially pregnant and in childbirth, because um, they would not go see male doctors um, in their culture. Um, so, in a, so Mary read this pamphlet, and in a letter written to her sister Lucy, <coughs> one year later, she described what happened as she read it. Some sentences near the close of the pamphlet spoke to my heart, and I knew it was the voice of God for me. 
At once, I saw all the difficulties I would have to face from circumstances, from others, and most of all from myself. But my course was set, and there remained nothing now but to keep straight on. An extract from later in that same letter further illuminates Mary's experience and her deep conviction of her vocation. Strange to say that though a number of friends are there in India, the subject had never appealed to me personally. I admired their zeal, that was all. I knew that missionaries from all parts of the world were in India as elsewhere. I took it for granted that they were getting on quite satisfactorily and I thought, if indeed I thought about the matter, that they could get quite, get quite well along without me. I am not so conceited as to think that I am essential to their success now. There is but one question. Does our Lord want me to do this for him? I think he does. Perhaps you have been thinking that I am mad. If I want to serve him, why can't I serve him here? or go on simply with the work at my hand. That is not for me to say. It is for him to point the way and me to follow. Mary couldn't go to India immediately. The war restricted travel and increased the demand for medical services in Melbourne. She spent the next four years quietly praying about her vocation and balancing the demands of work with community service. During this time, she agreed to become the first president of the women's, uh, Catholic Women's Social Guild, um, which is now known as the Catholic Women's League of Victoria and Wagga Wagga. Her conviction and trust in the guidance of the Holy Spirit during this time didn't waver. In 1919, four years after she had um, received her vocation, she wrote the following to her mother. I am more firmly convinced than ever that it is God's will for me to go to India. After all, we are here to do his will, not our own, and I could not if I would be deaf to his call. When I was no, not more than seven years old, you taught me to pray always that I might do the holy will of God. That has been my constant prayer. And when he has shown me unmistakably what is his will for me, I cannot refuse to do it. For years now, I have realized that this work in India is God's appointed task for me. There have been difficulties in the way, of course. That merely urges me to greater efforts, because it is natural that the difficulties should become greatest just when the task should be accomplished. Mary also undertook further studies at this time. She studied for an MD, a higher medical degree, specialising in gynaecology, ophthalmology and obstetrics. And actually, the first time she sat for this exam, um, she failed, and so she had to sit for it the year after, and she was conferred the degree in 1919. She left for India less than one month later, on the 21st of January 1920. In India, she was great, greeted with much joy and many prayers of thanks. Although she knew little of the congregation she was joining, she felt at home straight away. A month after arriving, she wrote this to her family. I can never thank God sufficiently for having deigned to ask me to work for him and for having directed me to this mission and to this house. 
As I have thought many times since I came here, I did not know these sisters, but God knew them very well, and his ways are very wonderful. Mary was particularly happy to see a statue of the Sacred Heart in the chapel, uh, in the sisters' chapel. Uh, Her mother had consecrated the whole family to the Sacred Heart, and in religious life she was to take the name Sister Mary of the Sacred Heart. After she arrived, she was taken to see the dispensary. One of the sisters went in and and showed her the medicines that they had, and there were three bottles. Um, Those bottles contained, one of them had bicarb soda, one of them had Epsom salts, and one of them had what we think was potassium citrate, and that was all they had. Um, And they sort of, the medical treatment consisted of taking a spoonful of each and mixing it with a bit of water and giving it to, to whoever came in. Um, so Mary saw this and she stood still for a few moments and then she said, God's will be done. Reflecting on her early days in India, Mary recalled that so great was the demand that she wanted to multiply herself a thousand times. But she also recalled that the sisters' work, even with untrained staff and not many resources at all, was blessed with many successful treatments. As well as serving at the dispensary, Mary and the sisters often visited outlying villages. There they had to overcome entrenched and often dangerous practices and beliefs about health care, childbirth and postnatal care. Five years after she came to India in 1925, she, uh, she helped open a hospital called St. Joseph's Hospital in Guntur. One year later, she filled out a form for the medical missions in India, a sort of a bureaucratic form, um, and in this form, in some of her answers, we can see uh, an insight into the conditions as well as her sense of humour. So I'll read out some of the questions and answers. So the first question is number of outpatients. The answer, 44,180. Um, and she's the only doctor at the time. The question, what salary given? Her answer. The vacancies are open to religious only. The salary, therefore, is the most enticing salary possible. It depends on the capital, spiritual capital, invested. Payments are made from an unfailing bank, the Bank of Our Lord, at the astonishing rate of 10,000% on all investments. If you doubt the accuracy of this statement, calculate the rate for yourself. Our Lord has promised 100-fold, even in this time. What other bank offers an inducement equal to this? And has he not promised over and above this in the next life everlasting? Question. Means of living available. Her answer. God's providence which never fails. Four years after the hospital opened in 1929, the Indian government recognised St. Joseph's Hospital as a training school for women dispensers. Between 1927 and 1936, Mary recorded that she cared for more than 637,000 patients. At this time, she also trained nurses and dispensers, taught chemistry and first aid in the secondary school, and research traditional remedies because relying on Western medicines coming from overseas was very expensive and it was very unreliable. So she would um, see what the locals were using, figure out what chemical compounds were in there and then try and apply those remedies to her patients. 
1943, in association with three other religious um, with three religious orders, 16 sisters, she founded the Catholic Health Association of India. And this is an organisation that still um, functions in India today, and it's one of her biggest legacies that she left in India. Today they serve over 21 million people every year uh, with a special focus on people who are um, disabled, who can't afford mainstream healthcare, who have tuberculosis and other other diseases that don't fit into the the mainstream um, healthcare system. In the last years of her life, she experienced serious illness. Uh, she, she had cancer and she underwent a number of operations for cancer, but it ultimately spread throughout her body. And in the last two years of her life, she endured enormous physical suffering. In her last letter, written to her sister Lucy on the 11th of March, 1957, we read, My dear Lulu, many thanks for your letters and for all you are doing for me. Please express my gratitude to Harold, Mary Sheehan, Margaret and other members of the family, to say nothing of your dear self. Reverend Mother Jacqueline told me you would like to come to India. Please put their idea out of your head. It would be a disappointment. Here I am in the convent subject to the rules restricting visits. And what if you should get sick yourself? Actually, you're doing more for me now than you could if you were here. Sister is holding my arm for me as I write. The arm cannot support weight. Many thanks for all you are doing. Mary died in Bangalore just over a month later, in May 1957. Tributes honouring her selflessness, kindness to the poor, deep interior life, dedication, broad vision and profound faith flooded in. The sisters who cared for Mary in her last months spoke of her prayerful acceptance of her excruciating pain, her love for God and dedication to his will, and her peace in the midst of her agony. In this next part of the talk, I'd I'd like to focus more on why she did and what her driving force was. Um, Because when we look at, when we hear inspirational stories such as Mary, we can really focus on all the great things she achieved. Um, But really to understand her, we have to look at what, what drove her and what inspired her. And I think that the primary, most singular driving force in Mary's life was her desire to do God's will. We can pick out important parts of her life story that we've just all heard um, where this is clearly manifest. You know, as a six-year-old girl, you know, she realised that she wanted to do God's will always. Um, in her teenage years, when she found that prayer by St. Claude de la Colombière, and then a few years later when she would pray this prayer constantly, trying to discern whether she was to study medicine. And in her missionary work, her one desire seemed to be to have to do God's will. Her concern to do God's will touched not only these major life-changing moments in her life, but was really present in her every day as well. She sought to be guided by God in her daily tasks, claiming that she of herself would not know what to do nor how to do it. Her devotion to the Holy Spirit was well known by the sisters and priests among whom she worked. Sister Peter Julian, a fellow sister of the order, expressed this well in the following statement, which, even though it's a little bit long, I think is worth quoting in full. Sister Mary was a person who was always very wise, and this can be accounted for by her special devotion to the Holy Ghost, 
and it is doubtful if anyone else had more devotion to the third person of the Blessed Trinity. Yes, the Holy Spirit is considered to be the forgotten paraclete, but not so for Sister Mary. On all occasions and continuously, Sister would ask each and every one she met to pray to the Holy Spirit for her, that she may receive special light to know what to do. How often one heard the remark, I do need the light of the Holy Spirit very badly. Our answer was, The poor Holy Spirit must be weary of you. You give him no peace in solving your endless problems. She would always smile and repeat the request. It is almost certain that Sister Mary never attempted anything and never finished anything without seeking the aid and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Such was her devotion and union with him in her daily work. This proved again and showed her deep humility in her realisation that without the gift of the Holy Spirit she could do nothing, but with him she could attempt all things, and she did attempt the impossible at all times, and she tried to inspire others to attempt them also. Both her devotion to the Holy Spirit and her, uh, um, her desire to do God's will testified to her humility. Even while she was in Australia, she was known for her humility. Archbishop Mannix wrote a letter to the sisters that she was joining in India um, in which he wrote, I am sending you an Australian postulant who is as humble as she is learned. Her humility was shown in her constant gratitude, which comes through in both her autobiography and her letters. For example, when she recounted the excellent results she received for the final exams in medicine, she immediately added, how can I ever thank God for his goodness? Similarly, she wrote of the time she spent at St. Vincent's Clinical School, I can never sufficiently accept the gratitude, express the gratitude I owe to St. Vincent's. In her last letter to Lucy, which we just heard before, she wrote, many thanks for your letters and for all you are doing for me. Many thanks for all you are doing. And Sister Peter Julian wrote, I must mention how grateful she was. In the very last minute of her agony, she called for me to thank Reverend Mother and all the sisters. Every day she did the same. For every little thing, a thank you was always on her lips. Only by understanding these key traits of Mary's character and spirituality can we gain an insight into both how she was able to accomplish so much and overcome so many challenges in her work and overcome so many challenges in her work, and also how she was able to be simultaneously zealous and detached in her missionary work. While facing seemingly insurmountable obstacles such as famines, droughts, um, the difficulties brought on by World War II, um, inadequate finances and supplies and impenetrable bureaucracies, Mary always remembered that the work she was undertaking was not solely her work, but God's work. In the words of Sister, Julian, Sister Peter Julian, in all her activities, Sister Mary was always most interested and zealous, yet at times she could appear wholly indifferent and utterly detached as well. On an occasion, one of the sisters suggested that she would like a few hours all to herself just to sit down and thus try to concentrate on a particular work. But Sister Mary's answer to this was that this might not always be advisable 
as one may become too attached to the work in endeavouring to accomplish something, and the success obtained may lead to pride, and then it would no longer be God's work, but just her own. We can say that Mary led a deeply relational existence, always listening to um, God in prayer and to the advice and needs of others, in humility recognising that everything she was able to accomplish was a gift from God, and expressing herself so often in words of gratitude. In Mary we see the wonderful things God can accomplish in those who are abandoned to his will. For ultimately, as Jean-Pierre de Cossard has written, sanctity lies precisely in the submission to the divine will. The key to Mary Glowry's life, I think, is her constant attunement to God's will and her courageous perseverance in carrying it out. Just as in the life of Mary Glowry, in our lives too, unconditional priority must be accorded to the placing of oneself entirely at the disposal of divine love. Through her humility and devotion to the Holy Spirit, she was able to accomplish great advances for women's health care in India and establish institutions and networks that continue to help many today. But in the final analysis, her apostolic and spiritual engagement with her missionary work can be encapsulated in her own words. There is but one question. Does our Lord want me to do this for him? Thank you. That was Helenka Pashtetnik with Mary Glowry as an example of the Christian life. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.